So, good morning everybody and thank you so much for coming. And thank you to Mohamed Salah for inviting me to speak today. What an honor it is to speak in this context today. And now I want to say something a little bit unusual, uh, but here goes. I also want to thank my son Christopher. He's 17 and as I'm giving my talk here today, He's doing an interview for art school in Amsterdam. So it's, <laughs> it's thanks to my confidence in his ability to do this on his own in Amsterdam that I'm here today. So it feels like a very special moment for us to be talking about art and literature and democracy and transitional justice today in different contexts. Now, um, let's, um, this is my first slide. I'm speaking about the writer Njabulan Debele, and in the 1960s, he was a schoolchild, and he describes this extraordinary event. He went into his father's garage and started unpacking a box of books, Chaucer, Milton, Shakespeare, all at the top, and as he dug deeper, this is what he found. A turning point in my life occurred when I discovered a treasure trove of banned books in my father's garage in South Africa. One day, alone at home and bored during the school holidays in the mid-1960s, I began to explore my home. There was that wooden crate at the right front corner of the garage, once I'd removed everything from the top of the box, I opened it. Inside were many books on music, art, and poetry, and others that I thought my father must have used for his degree studies at the University of the Witwatersrand. But as I got closer to the bottom of the box, my heart leapt with disbelief. Here was Down Second Avenue by Eskilm Pachlele, and Road to Ghana by Alfred Hutchinson, and Blame Me on History by Bloke Modisani. From this day onwards, Ndebele goes on to say, the, um, he, his horizons changed. The books break in on a world of social and political realities, which an apartheid government had excised from that potentially explosive cycle of writing, reading, and thinking. And I think you will have noticed from the title of my talk, I'm speaking about literature and democracy, but I also have substituted that word literature with the word literacy, the ability to read. And that tension between literature and literacy is what subtends what I'll be speaking about today. But what is memorable for Ndebele, the writer, as he relives his boyhood reading of Down Second Avenue and Blame Me on History, is a shock of recognition, an identification with the characters he reads about, and at the same time, an appreciation that racial oppression in South Africa could simply be subsumed with a universal abstraction how different they were from one another, he says. It struck me then that no matter how much black people suffered under apartheid, they did not experience oppression in the same way. 
it struck me then that oppressed people were far more complex than the collective suffering that sought to reduce them to a single state of pain. In their singularity and difference, these books spoke to me with a directness that I had not encountered in many school books about South Africa. Now, to speak and to hear, to have a voice and to listen, these basic human acts are com were compromised as the apartheid government slashed its dividing lines between people and the stories they could tell. For conversations and narratives to regenerate a sense of self demands feats of courage and imagination that could cut across apartheid's segregating lines. The critic Stephen Klingman invites us to think of both the risk and the transformation of a sense of self in acts such as Afrikaner Bram Fischer's joining of the Communist Party, which was one of the only non-racial political parties in South Africa at the time. Its members, and I'm quoting from Klingman here, at the edges of their identity opened themselves up. And in new configurations such as this one, Klingman goes on to say, the result was a new kind of language, a new syntax made of these connections and contiguities, these forms of expression, a grammar of identity was being fashioned in South Africa. Now coming back to Ndebele, he says, reading and writing are two sides of a coin I wish to call the art of the fine line. And he goes on to describe acts of writing and reading as a process of pushing the boundaries of, the, of thought in our democracy and deepening intellectual engagement. Now, Ndebele's phrasing marks out a tension between what is innovative beyond pre-existing thought, pushing the boundaries, and what is familiar, signaled in the hour of a present that recognizes as much as it instantiates the sense of a shared, if fraught, history. And Ndebele's literary commitment, his subjective engagement with individual lives, appreciates the way in which the passage from writing to reading and writing again opens new horizons new possibilities for thoughtful intervention. It is an antidote to orthodoxy and the comfort zones of populism, Nibele says, but at the same time, it creates bonds among us, the writers and readers who bear the legacy of words and worlds once outlawed. This book, and this is the preface to his fine lines from the box, um, which was published in 2007. This book is a tribute to my father's banned books, imprisoned, thought, now freely available, challenging, and he uses the word us again, to build on the legacy. But if this us, this us, or this our that Ndebele speaks about is able if we're able to push these new boundaries and through literature gain insights that push the boundaries of a 
an existing p political order, well, that presupposes a prior democracy, and that is a democracy of literacy, the democracy of being able to read. So this is something that has come to fascinate me a great deal. Um, now, moving to my next slide, and I'm speaking about Justice Zaki Yacoub. One of the things that is interesting to me is that many of the judges in the Constitutional Court in South Africa, if there's the assumption that justice is blind and impartial, many of the judges in the Constitutional Court in South Africa have been um, insisting on the subjectivity, the need for subjectivity and individual humanity in the law. So this is the link from the Ndebele, the first link from the Ndebele to Justice Zaki Yacoub, insisting on the subjectivity that is needed for transitional justice, that is needed for a, dis, um, a, a, a democracy in South Africa. And um, Zaki Yacoub, he has very radical ideas. He was, he was one of the first constitutional judges when um, South Africa became a democracy. He has very radical ideas and in many of his papers and case studies, he distinguishes between the truth and between, uh, between reasonable doubt. So he speaks about judgments as being storytelling contests. He says, judge, he says, so judges, and he said to us in a lecture at Witz, he said, which is the same place when Jabula Ndebele's father was studying English, same place where I was studying English as well. Um, but uh, he says, he's, he says um, judges, and maybe you don't understand this, we don't decide the truth. We don't know what the truth is. And judges never know what the truth is. And you can never know at the end of a case whether the judge's conclusion has resulted in a true finding or not. What judges do in certain cases is that in criminal cases, they look at all the evidence and determine whether the state claim has been established beyond a reasonable doubt. So there's cleavage between truth and reasonable doubt. So he says, judging is a human pro uh, process. He goes on to s insist, judging can never be an objective process. Um, judging in South Africa is not all about applying points of law. Judging is humanity, he goes on to say. Judging is about human beings. And therefore, it is absolutely essential for a judge to bring his or her subjectivity and his or her own humanity into the judging process. Because essentially, we are judging human beings and that humanity is essential. Now, at this lecture that I attended at WITS in 2014, um, Zak Yacoub was became blind when he was a very small child. And as he was delivering his uh, talk, there were certain parts of his talk that he had to quote. He was reading from uh, other sources and he had a device with a keyboard. And then as he was reading his quotations, he would be typing on the keyboard to be able to read what he was, the quotations that he was presenting to us. And when I received the transcript of the lecture, one of the things that was really interesting to me 
was that all the quotations were in this different font with the underlining. So everything that was being read off this little device came out in this format. Um, and you can imagine how moving this is, as Zach Yacoub was saying. We may, we may try to see things as objectively as we please. Nonetheless, we can never see them in any eyes except our own. Deep in our consciousness are other forces, the likes and the dislikes, the predilections and the prejudices, the complex of instincts and emotions and habits and convictions, which make the person, whether she or he, be a litigant or a judge. So if Yacoub is speaking about these narratives as being storytelling contexts, tests, he also insists that the narrative is changeable. He speaks about the importance of judicial persuasion and he says judicial persuasion is also changeable and art is one of the ways in which we can change that narrative and ensure that society can be extremely different from what it is now. So here we have in Yacoub again the emphasis on the subjective, but now what I want to do on the basis of this quotation is to think a little bit um, more carefully about the sensory fields in which we can perceive things. So what is it that we're able to read? What are the processes that we use in able to read? And um, I'm now speaking about writing, not only in the sense of Njabul and Debele, the, novel, the novelist, but writing also in its material formations. And one of, these, one of the questions then with writing, of course, is can you read it? So coming back to a question of literacy. So um, if literary writing taken in a flexible, is taken in a flexible way, we can at least in some sense understand it as the materialization of subjective experience, both in relation to the writer, the characters in the novels themselves, but also one of the things that has come to interest me now is the bodily expression of handwriting, a physical embodiment of individual thought and agency, and in, again, in relation to questions of justice and art. All right, now I want to show you the official signage at the Constitutional Court in South Africa. So um, the person who uh, designed the official signage at the Constitutional Court, his name is Garth Walker, and the Constitutional Court was built on the old fort, which used to be a prison where people like Nelson Mandela and Gandhi and also President Paul Kruger were held as prisoners. And that's where the, that it's on that site that the new Constitutional Court is in South Africa. The person who designed the official signage, Garth Walker, went to the site and he decided to use the graffiti that was still on the walls of the old prison as inspiration for designing the official signage. So here you can see some of the graffiti, some of his working notes. 
So what really fascinated me here was here is somebody using the individual, the subjective, a handwriting to make it the subjective, to make it the official signage in the <coughs> court of law. Um, and here you can see this is the front of the Constitutional Court. Um, at the moment, there are 11 official languages in South Africa. And um, I'm very pleased to say that there's a 12th language that is becoming official as I speak, and that is sign language, is becoming the 12th official language in South Africa. So, um, yes. So, handwriting is part of the subjective, the individual. It bypasses speech, time, individual embodiment. It's the recognition of a materialization of wanting to say. It is what is unique. But in that, we can recognize and read it. It is also shared. Now, to come back to Justice Zakia Koub, one of the things that um, the designers of the whole building of the court asked the 11 um, constitutional judges to do was to write in their own handwriting the words human dignity, equality, and freedom, and to write those in the 11 official languages at the time. Now, um, Zakia Koub himself, as I mentioned, is blind and couldn't, wasn't used to writing, but you can see his writing is the one at the bottom there, and you can see the word seriti, which is the sesutu word that gets translated as dignity or spirit. But this is the lintel above the door of the constitutional court with Zakia Koub's handwriting. So I just, it made me think about the sensory fields in which we're able to read and understand, in which people can be said to be able to write. And I want to show you, um, this is just a page from the notebook when I was taking notes at Zakia Koub's lecture that day in 2014. But what I want to um, show you these rubbings that are on the corners, the edges of the page. Um, in the constitutional court, everything is beautifully handcrafted, handmade, and um, they asked a a designer of pots, uh, clay pots, to come and design the nosings on the edges of the stairs. So the little, the, the little ridged things on the edge of a stair so that you don't slip. And she came and she designed these and all over in the Constitutional Court, these little um, nosings are made of copper. So I like the idea that in listening to Zakia Koub's talk, I was using a page where the tactile had become important rather than the visual, um, and for him as well with reading his device. And this is one of the pots in the Constitutional Court, um, and you can see the designs on the pot that have been used on the nosings. So this brings me to one of the central ideas in the book that uh, Mohammed Salah so kindly showed to you. Um, and this is the idea of aesthetics. And 
my use of the term aesthetics has become very important to me, um, not restricted to the more colloquial sense of study of the beautiful, but instead drawing on the term from ancient Greek philosophy, aesthesis refers to lived, felt experience, knowledge as, is, as it is obtained through the senses. And one of the meanings of aesthetics, dating back to 1803, when I went to look in the Oxford English Dictionary, became absolutely vital for me in my own work. And the meaning offered there is the science of the conditions of sensory perception. So this made me start thinking, in what ways is a social setting calibrated so that some people or other animals or things are seen or heard or valued as significant while others are not. What does it take to recalibrate the settings so that what has been unseen or unheard or devalued before can now be perceived as worthy of attention? It is this in this context that we begin to appreciate that aesthetic discussions could be useful in thinking through questions of social justice. And in his seminal work, The Politics of Aesthetics, Jacques Rancière speaks in specific terms of aesthetic acts as configurations of experience that create new modes of sense perception and induce novel forms of political subjectivity. He speaks about a distribution of the sensible, le partage du sensible, sensible of course here referring to that which is available to sensory experience. So it's at this, so, in a, as, so the point that um, has become vital for me, an aesthetic understanding brings us back to our senses. It draws attention to the nuances of different modes of representation, enabling us to think and question and recalibrate our perceptions of what is salient, legitimate or meaningful. And it's at the level of the materialization of thoughts and ideals in writing, speech <coughs> and other forms of cultural production that we're able to recalibrate the settings which have traction on our thoughts and ideals. Now I want to turn to the artist Willem Bosov. Um, and Willem Bosov is, um, how can I put this? He's a language artist. And he's a conceptual artist, but the little, the examples that I want to speak to you about today, is a volume of poetry that he published in 1980, and it's called Cake Afrikaans. And he was interested in two things. One was he saw the imminent demise of the typewriter as a technical device for writing. And um, the other thing that he was really interested, he's always interested in, is these 11 official languages, which languages are becoming extinct, have become extinct. And he's also, he is also concerned about the future of Afrikaans as a language in South Africa. So 
the poems in this little volume, so Cake Afrikaans, Look Afrikaans, the poems are printed, or shall we say painted with a typewriter. The letters of the words are arranged in different shapes across the page, and in many instances they overlap, and in some cases you can't read them at all. And so here are two examples. So this poem over here is called Pro Patria, Pro Patria. And um, so this is a poem against military conscription in South Africa in the 1980s during apartheid. And you can see little regimented blocks of words across the page. And you can just make out the letters of the words saying links, rachs, links, rachs, left, right, left, right. And Willem told me um, these, are, these are five soldiers. So they, they work stamping with their feet. Links, rachs, links, rachs, links, rachs. So five um, soldiers walking, stamping and marching next to each other. But the words themselves, links, rachs, left, right, are interrupted by scraps and shards of other words, some in English, some in Afrikaans. So the word sky or die or break, which means break, broken, and some other fragments of words that it's difficult to make sense of, as if the thoughts, the individuality and the mystery of each person can never quite be stamped out by the military regime. And here's another poem from that volume. And this one is called Verskanste Openbaring, or Hidden Revelation. And, uh, well, I'll tell you how this poem was made. What Willem did is he took the text of Revelations from the Bible, and he, and this is an Afrikaans Bible, and he put the sheet of paper into the typewriter, started typing the text of Revelation onto his typewriter, took the page out, put it in again, typed over it, took it out, put it in again, typed over it. And so he said to me that this is four, um, four, four typings over of the text of Revelations. And of course he left the gaps between the words and even after four times through the typewriter, you can see the little white spaces are just where the spaces between the words happen to have coincided. So in this work, Bosov explores the idea of human attempts at understanding, of revelation, revealing, taking away the veils and screens that obscure the light. This poem takes as its medium its paint the text of the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible. And the trouble is, the more words you have, the more obscure they become. And in the end, you can only make out a few letters here and there on this page. It's in the spaces between the words that we seem to have moments of greatest clarity. And um, Bosov said to me that these spaces between the words. He said to me, they are like little bright stars shining through the dark obscurities of language and our ability to understand better. Right, 
Now, I have looked at some artists who are challenging these questions of, um, uh, uh, of legibility, of literacy, of what is on the edge of understanding and what we can um, possibly read. And if those are artists who are grappling with those issues, I'm very interested in some of the early colonial days in South Africa where people were trying to bring people into a zone of literacy, of writing and reading and understanding. And in this context, the term contact zone that L Mary Louise Pratt comes up with is a very useful one to me. Um, she uses, she brought the phrase contact zone into critical currency and she says I use this term to refer to social spaces where cultures meet, clash and grapple with each other, often in contexts of highly asymmetrical relations of power such as colonialism, slavery or their aftermaths as they are lived out in many parts of the world today. And of course, one of these contact zones for me is that boundary between literacy and illiteracy. Um, but now I want to show you something beautiful. Um, in, and I'm just giving you the page as it appears in the book. In the late 19th century, the linguist Willem Bleck and his sister-in-law Lucy Lloyd uh, wanted to transcribe some of the sign languages, the Bushman languages that were becoming extinct. And they were really grappling to find a form in which they could bring these indigenous languages and dialects into a Western alphabet, into a Western mode of transcription. So you can see them grappling with how to sign it. So if you look on the left-hand side of the page, all sorts of challenges using those 26 letters. They had to use diacritical marks to indicate a dental click, the cer a cerebral click, a lateral click, a palatal click, a labial click. And so <coughs> all of those things and a labial click is like that. And there are also diacritical marks for a strong croaking sound in the throat, a gentle croaking sound in the throat, the nasal pronunciation of a syllable, or the rough, deep pronunciation of a vowel, a raised tone, a musical intonation, the arrest of breath, and all of these had to be co-opted into a system of writing and reading. But now let's just look through the other end of the telescope at this diagram and this was drawn by Diakon, one of the um, one of the people that was uh, at the time living in Willem Bleek's home. And here is a diagram with lines, circles that indicate things as various as the water which we drink, huts, the hill, children. Number four is children, the house of the lioness. How do we read this? What is, what is the range of our literacy? So if I say to you, can you read? And you will say yes. But even last night we could see in the translations on the slideshow, um, how many of us could read all of those 
all of those beautiful translations, certainly not me. It was a different field, a different sensory zone of transcription. So um, I just want to come back to this question of literacy um, before I finish with my final slide. In a recent study last year in South Africa, it was found out by, in a study of 50 countries by the, uh, the institution, the Progress in International Reading Liter Literacy Study, the Progress in International Reading Literacy Study, out of 50 countries, South Africa came in at number 50. And almost four in five grade four pupils in South Africa live below the lowest internationally recognized level of reading literacy. So grade four um, pupils, well, that's nine, ten-year-olds um, not able to read um, South Africa coming in at the bottom. So I think um, when we come then to these things here, we have to ask ourselves, well, what are our levels of literacy? What are the sensory fields in which we say that we can read or not read? What is the critical literacy demanded in contexts of transitional justice? And to end with just this one picture over here, um, here are two mantises, um, also drawn by Diakon for, for Willem Bleek. And the mantis at the top, the mantis at the top is a female mantis, and the mantis at the bottom is a male mantis. And I would love to have the literacy to be able to see what, and understand what that difference is and take it further. So thank you very much. Thank you.